Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Northern indigenous Crees were native to Montana and the Northern Plains long before the U.S.-Canada border divided the region. But bisected by the lion, Crees became asylum seekers from their own lands 150 years ago. Though some were granted political refugee status, Crees were still denied basic rights. Instead, many were killed, ignored, and deported on both sides of the border. The Chippewa Cree story is little known outside the tribe, but it echoes the uncertainty in the immigration crises the U.S. faces today. So writes Brendan Rensink, author of a new book, Native but Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands. Brendan Rensink is assistant director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies and assistant professor of history at Brigham Young University. He joins us by telephone. Professor Rensink, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so, uh, a lot of things you do there at the uh, Charles Red Center. I noticed that you are a host of a Riding Westward podcast, so that's kind of a role reversal here. Yeah, I find myself on the other end of yeah. uh, the interview today. <laughs> <laughs> so, by the way, some good uh, interviews there, Riding West podcast. Go and uh, check it out. Um, I was listening to a little bit of your uh, program on uh, Wildfire. Oh, with Stephen Pine. Stephen yeah, that Pine, was a, yeah. That was a fun yeah. conversation. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so tell me, uh, in you know thumbnail sketch, uh, what's Native but Foreign about? Yeah, so I published this book last year, and it uh, compares the experiences, as you mentioned in the introduction, of some Native peoples uh, who crossed the U.S.-Canada border into the United States. And I compare their experiences with some groups from Mexico, Yaqui Indians who crossed into the United States, uh, into Arizona, and both came as laborers, um, as immigrants, and then both had some groups who came as political refugees and were allowed to stay as refugees, but they weren't integrated into the American Indian uh, system. They didn't sign treaties, and so they were uh, Native and Indigenous, but they weren't considered American Indians by the federal government. So I kind of compare those experiences and then trace it through both of their successful uh, fights to have federal tribal recognition. Uh, This is so interesting. It has resonances, obviously, to today, and you wrote a piece for uh, PRI's The World, I believe, uh, kind of making some of those parallels. We'll talk about that as we go along. Uh, So interesting because, uh, you know, these peoples were already there long before uh, you know, the Anglo-Americans showed up and started drawing lines, which became borders. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to think about, you know, underneath the the Euro-American map that we generally think about, there, there were indigenous worlds as well and boundaries, and um, it was a dynamic world with Native peoples moving all over the continent. And kind of the, the fixity of... Uh, and. Uh, when when we came and drew lines across the land, it's, it created a lot of very, really interesting dynamics. I wonder if we could talk about um, I, many people in the book are fascinating. I was especially fascinated by Little Bear, uh, Cree yeah. chief, uh, who worked who worked for years and years, and finally was successful in you know helping his his people. Um, so Little Bear and others had uh, participated in an uprising, right? Um, and, in Canada, yeah, in, in Canada. And now they were crossing the border, um, seeking refuge. Again, this border which had been drawn, and they're on both sides of the, of the border. Uh, I guess one f- first thing to say is um, the, the the Cree 
exploited the border. They they would you know to for for their gain, they knew that their pursuers would stop at the border, so they used it for their gain. But it also was damaging to them. Yeah, that's kind of the paradox, isn't it? Um, the border has no inherent meaning to them. It, it bisects the, some of their traditional homelands, but once we assigned importance to it, they often then would use it to their advantage, as you mentioned, which is something of a paradox, yeah. And you talk... Um, and, and, and little, yeah, go ahead. But a little bear himself had a long history uh, before um, this 1885 kind of political refugee crossing. Him, uh, with uh, as a member of his father's band, Big Bear, they had been uh, crossing the border for, for quite a year, a few years before as well. And you talk about the political pressures, uh, you know, why, uh, you know, the white people wanted the, the Native Americans on one side of the border or the other. This particular uh, quote hit me. This is the River Press a paper there, 1887, which uh, said, we have in Montana all the Indians we need and a few thousand to spare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's from uh, Benton. Montana. They were not big fans of these of the border crossing native peoples. Yeah, I mean, so if you think in Montana in the 1880s, 1870s and 1880s, uh, they're a new territory. They're hoping to attain statehood, which comes with all kinds of new benefits. And to accomplish that, they needed to attract white settlement. They needed to attract business and capital investment to build cities um, and kind of, you know, extend the settler colonial, you know, American system into the state. And uh, Native peoples did not fit into that. So there had been an ongoing process of signing treaties and settling Native peoples on reservations and, and confining them to reservations. And these Crees and others who were crossing the border from Canada were not on those reservations. They were uh, wandering about. And that was viewed as a real threat by many of the boosters, like those of the River Press, who were trying to attract people to come and settle in the region. Uh, and so this is, is so interesting. They're native, but they're but they're, you know the title of the book. They're native but foreign. These are not registered American Indian tribes. These are they're considered foreign. Yeah, um, the, the Crees, for for example, they're one of the largest North American indigenous peoples. They stretched from uh, Hudson Bay all the way to the Rocky Mountains. Um, and so when we talk about Crees, we're talking about uh, many, many, many different groups of Crees. And most of them did fall a little bit farther north. But in earlier decades, we had um, actively recruited and welcomed them to come down into the United States to trade with us uh, during the fur trade. So um, they had had a presence across the border that we drew, and we welcomed it for quite a while. Um, but after the fur trade collapsed, we were interested in uh, in confining uh, Indians' reservations here and when possible, with the Crees, as most of them were from Canada, uh, we said, well, well, we'll use that border to restrict their movement and not accept them south of the border. So, yeah, they were not registered. They didn't sign treaties. They didn't have agreements with the federal government as other tribes in Montana ter- territory did. So you write that uh, in the 1890s, uh, some Crees were deported, native but deported. Yeah. So you mentioned that they, they had taken part so they'd been down in Montana in the 70s and early 1880s. And then eventually Big Bear had taken his people and others had gone back to Canada and had signed a treaty, finally. And they'd been resisting treaties in Canada for a long time. And things didn't go well. 
and they participated in this uprising in 1885 and were implicated in a massacre up on the Saskatchewan um, Alberta border. And so Little Bear had taken a group and fled south, crossed the border as political refugees seeking asylum. And they were granted um, uh, asylum. And we, we said they could stay. We'd protect them from, from Canada. But a decade later, uh, n- after we had given them asylum, we hadn't really provided any further solutions. No lands, no treaties. And so they were just wandering about for a decade, really suffering. And um, uh, I mean, the, the stories are really difficult to read. So by the mid-1890s, there was a, a growing desire in Montana to get rid of them. And so um, the Army, um, uh, the Congress appropriated some money, and the Army was tasked with rounding up all the British, they called them, or, or Canadian Crees as they could, and uh, forcibly deport them across the line. Um, it was led by um, John J. Pershing, Blackjack Pershing, who we later know from World War One. Fame, you know, leading the American Expeditionary Force in World War One, and him and um, African American soldiers uh, and others were tasked with this in eighteen, the mid eighteen nineties. And this was particular, you know, in some ways brutal. Uh, forced to walk, loaded into cattle cars. Yeah, I, I, again, the stories out of this are really. Uh, I talk about it a little bit in that piece for Public Radio International, but there, there's there's a lot. Uh, there's some cases of, of suicide. Uh, one gentleman, rather, he was so afraid of going back to Canada, he thought he would be, you know, prosecuted or jailed there. So he he, he uh, killed, shot himself uh, in full view of the camp. Wow! Um, rather than yeah. rather than cross north, there's also the issue that by this point, many of the Crees um, were now American born. Um, they had children, and so although American Indians weren't citizens yet in the United States, that doesn't come till. Uh, a few decades later, but uh, many were American-born. And then in the process of the of the deportation, lots of Chippewas, um, Métis, which are um, people of mixed heritage, uh, who were from the United States and born on this side of the line, were rounded up and deported as well. Mm. So it, w- it was a very messy process. So this particular case, there, uh, there is some comedy, at least I took it this way, maybe inappropriately, but you do. <laughs> uh, the Anaconda Standard, you quote, uh, about this deportation, um, many escaped and returned, I guess, quite quickly. And the Anaconda Standard, you quote, circled, uh, the, the American Indians circled around the troops, reached Fort Assiniboine in Montana, ahead of soldiers who had taken them across the border. So this paper's complaining <laughs> that the de- deportation had, in some cases, not been successful. Yeah, uh, and the standard had been, Anaconda Standard had been one of the real vocal opponents, and they continued to be afterwards, um, of Little Bear, his people, and others. And so, yeah, they're here complaining. And this is also uh, c- kind of confirmed through popular um, Cree um, uh, oral histories, um, this kind of humorous anecdote that uh, they, were, uh, they were rounded up and deported, but most of them beat the troops back to Fort Assiniboine. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and then the papers pick up on this, other papers as well, immediately after, saying, you know, what, what, what was all this money spent for? Because uh, they're back. And so uh, then it turns uh, it turns very sad. Um, essentially, the you know the U.S. government says, "Okay, we spent all this money and it didn't work." So uh, these people aren't ours, right? They're foreign, so we're essentially going to ignore them. Yeah, which which and this tur- has been- leads to you know in some cases starvation and it's horrible things. 
yeah, I mean, Montana winters aren't aren't known for being that pleasant, um, especially up, you know, along the High Line. Um, there, you're up on the uh, you're out on the plains, and it's it's cold, uh, and the winters can be really brutal. Um, there have been, you know, long policies of you know official or not of of ignoring them, but after the failed deportation, there, there's calls in Montana for there to be another deportation, more funding, and the army makes attempts to stop people at the border and patrol the border. But it's a big, long, open border. Um, there's not a fence. There's not a wall. Um, there's a lot of wide open spaces that the Native peoples knew better than we did. So uh, generally, they were they were ignored. And they they employed all kinds of tactics to try to survive. But uh, it led for a lot of really difficult years. Uh, rummaging through city dumps? Right, eating the yeah. dead horses and dogs—a uh, very painful time. Yeah, um, this was reported in a lot of the papers that, and, and some of them also, in kind of cr- a cruel um, fashion, kind of making fun of uh, Crees. Uh, but how they li- they they did—they lived in city garbage dumps on the edges of Helena and Great Falls and other and Butte, other cities, um, struggling to find resources where they could, um, working as wage laborers where they could. They at times would get short-term contract cutting timber or I'm working uh, for the military at times on the edges of uh, military forts. They collected um, and polished uh, bison um, horns and bones and they would try to sell them. Um, At at various times they started hosting um, sun dances um, in the mid-1890s and they actually started to have some real success. It became quite popular and they would um, open them up to the public and it became something of a a public uh, event that earned them some money, earned them some positive press, and won them some allies. But uh, the Montana governor then banned the Sundance, uh, mm. so that didn't last didn't last long. Why? Why? Uh, why did he ban the Sundance? Well, American officials were interested in trying to assimilate Native peoples, trying mm-hmm. to, um, and so there are various. This is just one of many examples of the practice of Native religion, uh, the speaking of Native languages being banned. This is also during the area of boarding schools where on reservations, children are being sometimes forcibly removed and shipped off to boarding schools where their their hair is cut and they're not allowed to speak their language. So it's part of kind of that movement of trying to not allow Native peoples to practice their, uh, their religion uh, and their culture. But I think there was also... Sp- specific political implications here, um, the Crees had found a, success, a successful way to um, have some positive outcomes, and uh, the governor and others are still interested in them simply going away. So mm-hmm. this positive uh, thing in there that they had developed was, was taken away from them. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm trying not to lean too heavily on the current parallels, but I'm, <laughs> you know, Governor Romney's uh, they'll self-deport comment, for example, you know, when he's running for president, and you talk about uh, many things. The current administration. Um, I want to quote this. You yeah, talk, I mean, yeah, this idea if you make it unpleasant enough, maybe they'll yeah they'll simply simply leave. Yeah, they'll, they'll just leave. Yeah. Um, when really, I guess, uh, you know, in the view of many, uh, the 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 forces, right? The economic forces are very powerful. Um. And uh, if if that economic magnet is here, then the people are going to come. Talking about the current situation, but back to that the situation in eighteen I guess eighteen nineties or so, you you found this in the Anaconda Standard, 
I'm quoting here, uh, several Cree Indians called on the county of uh, uh, the commissioners yesterday with a story of starvation threatening their band. The commissioners tried to explain to the Indians that they had no claims on this community, had no business to be here, and therefore the county could not assist them. Um, you know, again, some resonances uh, to today. You know, let's, we don't want illegal immigrants uh, soaking up resources that could go to uh, citizens. Yeah, and this is a common refrain. There's lots of Hill County. There's a couple of good examples where they get quite upset, um, complaining to the governor and sometimes even complaining up to, you know, their senators in D.C. saying, you know, last winter we had to supply so many hundreds of dollars worth of supplies and uh, we're worried that this winter they're going to come back and uh, and ask for uh, resources and supplies again. And and some of them are frustrated because there is a federal system to um, treat with Native peoples and to, to provide for them, right, um, on the reservations. And so there are some calls in, in this context to say, well, can we, if they're not going to leave, um, can we put them on a reservation? And there are some uh, attempts to do that, um, more with Chippewas than with Crees, because these are two different groups, but none of those quite pan out either uh, throughout those 1890s and then the first, you know, 15 years of, of the 20th century. Mm. I want to read another quote. Uh, you found this from Little Bear, 1913, so advancing, you know, several years. Um, th- this is interesting as well. Little Bear says, My children are not lazy. They're eager and ready to go to work. We cannot secure employment because of the antipathy of the white man for us. When winter comes, we'll be without food and wood and, uh, f- food and, wood and clothing and blankets. The white man lets foreigners come here, gives them work, but they do not do that for Indians, and we will starve. There's nothing left but starvation. So now competing groups, and uh, Little Bear is pointing out that he's... You know, officially labeling him a foreigner, but he, in his mind, he's not. And then different foreigners coming in, and you're letting them work. Yeah, he's, uh, and by this point, by 1913, Little Bear, um, who's leading these um, Crees, and then there's another chief named Rocky Boy, who's leading a group of Chippewas. They both have gained quite a few allies, and there's Montanans, some very prominent Montanans, who are helping them present their case. And I think here, um, Little Bear has been I mean, he's been made aware of kind of the broader things going on in America, and they've, they've keyed in on this really, uh, a little bit of the hypocrisy that others are being allowed to come. And he says, you know, we're from here, and we're not being allowed to. I mean, in the same interview, and this is from July of 1913, he says, um, he brings out a couple other really interesting points. He says, um, yeah, he says, you know, like, we're, we're, not le- we're not lazy, we're ready to go to work. And he says, uh, but there are a few classes of work we can do, um, um, Oh, there are but a few classes of work we can do, but at that we cannot secure employment because of the antipathy the white man has for us. He says once we could hunt and secure food for our women and children, but the white man will no longer let us do that and puts us in jail if we do, because there had been lots of hunting restrictions placed across Montana. Uh, He says we cannot keep livestock because the lands have been fenced up. So he's even saying, you know, maybe we could be a livestock people, but we don't have land of our own to do it, and the open range has been fenced. He says, we cannot earn money by making furniture because we do not know how. We can farm and work on railroad grades, but the white man will not give us the grades. And he's here referring to, up in Canada, there were lots of Native peoples, not on reserves, who were kind of given permission, especially Métis, that were given permission to farm alongside railroads. There are these spaces of unclaimed or railroad-owned land, you know, on the margins of railroads, and so they would farm that land. 
But little bear, little bear here is saying, you know, we're not allowed to do that either. So he put, he puts out a lot of options, but explains why uh, they're being denied all those options. And so, if you step back from that, it's <laughs> uh, it really hits you. He's saying, hey, we we're willing, I guess, out of necessity, to change our entire culture, our entire economy. You just let us do something, right? But it, but these are huge changes. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a real frustration, and I mean, at this, you know, this is this is 1913. So by this point, there's almost 20, almost 30 uh, years after, uh, you know, they had cu- come as political refugees and been told they could stay, and you know, a full generation later, the the situation is just as dire as ever. Hmm. Um, before we go to break, I want to uh, kind of bring this uh, forward. Um, let's see, I'm trying to find this here. You. Uh, you talked with Ed- Edward Stamper. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Um, he's yeah. currently is he's with the Chippewa Cree. I guess the, the the two tribes were joined in a reservation where they now referred to as Chippewa Cree. Correct. Um, and so he's 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 saying this history is still in the minds of the Chippewa Cree tribal members. You know, we as, a, as tribal members, uh, Native Americans, we still remember this. Yeah. Um, and for many, then it's a really painful history. Um, there are some who, who kind of actively do not want to talk about it, who still feel the, the sting of kind of, of that foreign stigma that was placed upon them. And uh, when they think about that now, you know, they think about some of these quotes we've been talking about from the Anaconda Standard and others who talked about their ancestors in very negative terms, and especially with this real foreign uh, stigma. And uh, some of them would rather not uh, revisit and think about those, those historic times, but others... Many say, you know, that they really, I mean, and Stamper is one, uh, and others who say we, our youth need to know about this, they need to know about our history, know about the struggles we faced and the triumphs we eventually had. Um, and it's, it's important to, for people to know their history, know their background. Uh, so in the speech for PRI, you, you draw a parallel. You, you talk about how, this was January, you talk about how the uh, U.S. House has proposed granting Venezuelan refugees temporary protected status. I'm not sure how that uh, ended up, but uh, the temporary protected status would protect Venezuelans already in the United States from deportation temporarily. Then you point out that the Trump administration revoked uh, protected status for Southeastern Asians who'd lived in the United States for decades. Uh, So this idea that, uh, you know, you can seek asylum like Little Bear did and his people, that could be revoked. It's, you you never know unless you're a citizen. Yeah, that's, which underscores, I mean, both then and today, the, the real precarious uh, nature that some of that these people uh, live here in the United States. And they are, I mean, they're, they're generally here and receiving TPS or temporary protected status because they are uh, people under duress. They're vulnerable. They, they've fled some kind of horrible situation. And, uh, and sometimes here, uh, the situation is, uh, I think, generally better, but precarious mm-hmm. and uncertain. And again, I, I, you know, in the back of my mind, it's it's a, it's a running loop. Uh, these peoples are native; <laughs> they're native to the to this place, and the border was drawn through them, right? Yeah, I mean, just yesterday, I think it was in the New York Times did a big piece about um, uh, Simon Romero in the New York Times did a big piece about the border, and he went and kind of went through the the former U.S. Mexico border before the U.S. Mexican War. And interviewed and um, t- 
took some uh, a photographer with him and took some really gorgeous photographs of all these people, but bringing up the idea that uh, we didn't we didn't cross the border; the border crossed us. Right? These are uh, people who are now in the United States, but their ancestors used to used to be Mexico. Um, yeah, so we have this interesting dynamic of of people who were here before, um, kind of general mainstream Americans, and, and our ancestors were at least mine. Um, who find themselves on the margins and somehow out of the mainstream of of America. Um, Edward Stamper, uh, you quote him as saying, uh, for the Chippewa Cree, there should not even be a border. Yeah, uh, uh, and that, that statement is echoed by lots of other Native peoples as well. Um, the Tohono Awesome down on the Sonora-Arizona border, they have a contiguous... A population on both sides of the border. I mean, literally, you know, they have grandmothers who live a half mile away in Mexico on the other side of the border. And in the post 9-11 world, many of the cross-border relationships uh, and travel that they had were really complicated and made quite difficult, where you have, you know, a, a relative dies, uh, the funeral is a mile away just across the border, but they're required to travel 40 or 50 miles along the border to the closest uh, crossing point, crossover, then 50 miles back, you know, they can see their house across the border, but they've had this long journey to get to a funeral. Um, and then Stamper's kind of echoing that, and there's others as well, who today continue to hold relations with family members um, and related bands across the border. And, um, and some of them have old treaty rights, and they can cross and not pay tariffs on trade duties. Um, there's a, a, a handful of groups on both the Canadian and Mexican borders who have treaty rights to cross. Uh, in ways that others don't. But even those are uh, being challenged quite a bit as well. Of course, uh, taking a look at today, an immigration restrictionist, a strong border person would say, well, you know, perhaps I can sympathize, but this is the way it is. We need strong borders to survive as a nation. Um, you know, get over it. I, I'm putting it a little tougher than than perhaps they would, but... Um, um, I guess uh, a person like Edward Stamper would, uh, would definitely disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, countries, nations have the the rights to to have borders, right, and to enforce them. Um, Stamper and other Native peoples are arguing that before that border was created, that you created it on top of existing land claims, and uh, many tribes have treaties. You know, the United States signed treaties and made agreements with them. Um, uh, Stampers, uh, uh, the Chippewas and Crees are a little bit different in that, but all of them, whether treaty or not, um, are calling back to kind of their primal uh, rights to lands and resources um, that were either um, taken by war, taken by treaty, often taken by fraudulent treaty, um, uh, or otherwise, otherwise lost to them. Let's so uh, yes, yes, go ahead. So the current border enforcement um, uh, people, I mean, that's, they, they have a, a good point. The, the border can be enforced. Nations have the right to do that. Um, but we also then need to recognize um, the, the people that are being uh, ignored in that. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to hear about the uh, very interesting history on the southern border, the Yaquis. Um We've made reference to that, but haven't uh, treated that. Um, Brendan Rensink is uh, Assistant Professor of History at Brigham Young University, and uh, he is Assistant Director of the uh, Charles Red Center for Western Studies there. 
um, author, I'll mention again, of, uh, or not an author, but host of Riding Westward podcast. We have him on Access Utah for the hour, talking about his interesting new book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra's 2019-2020 through 2020 season, including African Sanctuos and a Requiem for a Young Man Do Rufle Requiem slash Yangon Symphony Concertant. Season tickets available at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. UPR's Fall Member Drive is coming up September 12th through 19th, and we need your help to make it happen. UPR is a listener-supported station, which means every day of the year we rely on you to make our programming possible. During our member drives, your support is even more vital, and not just your financial donations. Throughout the entire member drive, we also need volunteers to answer phones and record donations for us. Volunteering your time is a great way to support UPR, so sign up for a volunteer shift today at upr.org. Utah is home to breathtaking natural wonders and rigorous scientific research, and the issues affecting our natural world are important to the life of every Utah. That's why we're answering the question, so what? Science Utah is your home for all things science. Our team of science reporters, most of them graduate students from USU's Ecology Center, are updating you on the latest in science news and providing commentary on pressing issues. Because scientific topic, from air quality to our national parks and even gene editing, matters to Utah. Join us as we explore the world of Science Utah, available at upr.org, the UPR app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, my guest, is uh, Brendan Rensink. He is Assistant Director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies and Assistant Professor of History at Brigham Young University. Uh, and he's author of a new book, very interesting book, Native But Foreign Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands. So, Brendan Rensink, I want to uh, make a transition to the Yaquis in the South. But before we do that, I was reading some interviews you gave. Um, this was just so interesting to me how history can be exciting. You know, some people say, oh, history is just <laughs> it's boring, or the writing of history, or, you know, and I'm sure you vehemently disagree with that characterization, uh, as I would as well. Um, there was. Um, you you uh, maybe could tell this story. You saw in footnotes reference uh, to some uh, a rich uh, series of uh, documents. Um, this was in in the north of Montana, I think, uh, but nobody could point you to them. Then you get to a school and somebody says, "Oh, there might be some file cabinets buried back there somewhere." <laughs> tell me that story. Yeah, um, yeah. So this gets to the point that. Uh Writing and researching history is exciting, but I will make a broader pitch that history is great, and we should all be interested. Actually, polling shows that as teenagers and into their 20s, people, a lot of people don't like history. It's not one of their favorite subjects. And then once people get get into their 30s and 40s, there's a dramatic shift, the polls show, and people become much more interested in history. And I hear this all the time when people hear I'm a history professor, they say, oh, um, I love history now. I wish I would have done a history major. <laughs> what, by the way, uh, what, know, looking, what do you looking uh, back? What do you think that is? That people have more history of their own. What, what, what do you think that is? They, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe once you get older, you start getting a little more retrospective. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, history is stories, and, and stories are great. Um, maybe uh, as history educators, uh, we have a bad history ourselves of making it interesting. Maybe 
memorizing dates and names isn't the way to do it, uh, which is not, not, not how most of us do it, but it's gotten a bad rap. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That might not be the way to go about it. Uh, so but tell to me, this story, yeah, um, yeah so I, I had found a bunch of footnote references from the 70s of something called the Rocky Boy School Archive. Um, and and the, is the Rocky Boy Reservation in Montana is where that Chippewa Cree tribe is. And I had contacted actually Ed Stamper, um, who was, is there, was there at the time at Stonechild College at the Tribal College. And he put me in contact with people in the tribal offices to try to hunt down this archive to see if I could gain access to it, because from the footnotes, the sources looked very interesting, and they were sources that I hadn't found anywhere else. And he he, he didn't know what it was. Um, the people in the tribal offices weren't sure what it was. And finally, the, the superintendent of uh, the schools there, yeah, said, you know, there's in the basement kindergarten room, there's a large closet, kind of like a storage room, and there are some file cabinets down there. Maybe that's it. And so I was, a, I was a graduate student in Nebraska at the time, and I was planning a Montana research trip. So I, I drove out to Montana and showed up, and a janitor let me in, and uh, I opened up the closet, and it's full of kindergarten supplies and all kinds of other things, and I had to kind of unbury these file cabinets that were stuck in the back, and I opened them up, and sure enough, there it is. It's this old archive from the 70s that uh, a group of tribal researchers had, had compiled this amazing treasure trove of information. They had gone to national and state archives and made scans and photocopies of everything they could find, but they'd also conducted lots of oral history interviews and collected things. And so I spent a few days there. I, I spent an extra day um, making a full catalog of the archive, which I then gave to the tribe um, so they could kind of you know, see what's there. And it was, it was an amazing find. It was, it was it was one of the more kind of exciting finds. <laughs> uh, an illustration that, uh, you know, one man's uh, trash, another man's treasure. We... Yeah, I'm so glad that they kept it. I'm glad they had a large storage closet and weren't hurting for space because, uh, yeah, what a what a great resource. And I believe they've made copies of it now and they have it over at the Tribal College and and hopefully those are being made available. Yeah, so this is, this is the exciting work that uh, people like you do. You, you find that and put it in context and bring it to us. Uh, so we're grateful. Uh, so the, the Yaquis and you, it's, as you say, it's, you know, rather than dates and, and stuff, it's a, it's important to, you know, to learn about the people. And so, um, you talk about, um, a Yaqui Indian named Lucas Chavez. He was born in 1871 and, uh, his experiences, I guess, in the Yaquis, similar in a lot of ways to the, the Chippewa and the Cree in the, in the North, in that the, you know, these were their ancestral lands, but a border was drawn drawn through those lands. Yeah, um, I believe I think I, I might have opened the book with uh, this little vignette about Chavez. Um, but yeah, he's one of many Yaquis who, so they're, they're from the, uh, their homelands of the Yaqui River Valley, which is in Sonora down along the coast. Um, it's a rich, fertile um, valley. And they had a long, they, they were the last, by the late 1900s, they were the last unconquered indigenous people, uh, or a fully independent indigenous people in Mexico. And they had fought countless wars. Well, we probably could count them, but uh, many wars with uh, Spain and then with Mexico, and they'd remain un- unconquered. Um, and through that time, though, they had been a, a mobile people as well. Uh, they were expert miners, and they had a long history of ranging out from the Yaqui River Valley to participate in mining all across Sonora and Chihuahua 
And then farther north, um, before there was a U.S.-Mexico border, they were in what became Arizona, um, working at missions um, with uh, Jesuit and Catholic missionaries and mining as well. Uh, they, they show up in the gold fields in California, and, you know, in the 1840s and the 50s. And so when uh, this guy, Lucas Chavez, uh, is born in 1870, he's born into a community that is rooted in Sonora, that has long histories and ties and networks that extend across the border as it was then. Um, he's also born then in a time of mounting violence. And in the late 19th century, the government of Porfirio Diaz, who's the president of Mexico looked at the Yaqui River Valley and again said, we need to get this under control. And he specifically wanted to develop it. He wanted agricultural and industrial development. He wanted to attract American investment down to the region. And to do that, these uh, independent, uncontrolled Yaquis needed to be taken care of. So Chavez and others find themselves um, really uh, uh, in the killing fields. Uh, the Diaz regime declared a war of extermination, was the word they used, against the Yaquis, and uh, to get rid of them by any means possible. And, and, and here's where we get, I mean, uh, at least what I covered in my books, and I had to cover it quite quickly, but some of the more really horrific uh, uh, stories of this time. And then these are, you know, unusually, the, the story usually is uh, American Indians, you know, leaving the, the U.S. This is, these are Native Americans who ancestrally had, flowed throughout all this region, now a border uh, has been put up now fleeing into the U.S. Yeah, that was the original hook for me when I came across this, the idea for this project uh, was there's, there's all kinds of stories of Native peoples crossing borders in American history, but it's generally Native people leaving the United States, right? Sitting Bull goes up to Canada for a time, uh, Chief uh, Joseph and the Nez Perce try to flee to Canada, others flee to Mexico, and yeah, and so here we had groups coming into the United States. So as these Yaquis are, uh, they're being uh, killed in large numbers. Others are being uh, rounded up and enslaved, um, rounded up and forcefully deported down to the Yucatan, to southern Mexico, and sold into a slave labor. And so in the face of that, there's large numbers who flee north, following the same trails that their relatives and uh, friends have used to go up to Arizona for mining and other things. Um, and then there's oh, there's Yaquis living, you know, in Arizona as well at that point. Um, and they flee along those same trails to escape. Um, this is from the 1890s. Um, and this continues as the violence continues all the way up into the 1920s, various waves of, of refugees trying to escape persecution, enslavement uh, in Mexico. So uh, someone like Chavez, who, you know, escapes into the U.S., uh, how would he be viewed what uh, what was his life like then? Uh, you know, escaping the, you know these horrors in Mexico, but there'd be problems, I would imagine, in in the U.S. Yeah, things are really complex for them, uh, and this is where we get some of the interesting comparisons with with the Canadian example along the Canadian border in Montana. In that, uh, say, when Little Bear and his Crees, you know, when they crossed south, um, Americans did not mistake them for. Um, Canadian, right? They were clearly indigenous native peoples. But when Yaquis come up from Mexico, many Americans don't, hold, don't see the same distinction between an indigenous Mexican or a Mexican Indian, as they might call them, 
and uh, just a Mexican immigrant. And and then there's some irony here, right? Because uh, Yaquis are fleeing Mexico, fleeing Mexicans, but the fact that Americans don't necessarily view them as that different allows them to blend in when needed. So many of these Yaquis uh, cross north and do not publicize their Yaqui identity, as uh, the American press ha- often has a very negative view of them because they're always at, it seems it seems to be always at war and causing trouble along the border in Sonora. So this allows them to lay low and to blend in with kind of broader Mexican immigrant uh, labor networks, um, which is really unique and different from the Canadian example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oh. at a, at other times, minor mining companies and railroad companies, um, irrigation companies that are building canals in Arizona, um, specifically want Yaqui laborers because they had a reputation for being the best workers. So at sometimes they are able to lay low because of these kind of their perceived ethnicity, and other times they want to stand out. And, and, and some of them have been granted official protection, um, if they've come in and registered within a certain year as refugees, but others uh, came across covertly, and their status in the United States is less certain. So there's all kinds of uncertainty and all kinds of uh, danger and uh, and fear for the Yaquis living in Arizona. And you write, um, though their legal presence and belonging always remained in question in Arizona, talking about the Yaquis, during the first half of the 20th century, while they played these indispensable economic roles, this, of course, is typically American story. Certain foreign groups are desired for their labor alone. Yeah, this, yeah, they're not alone in this. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, uh, so that you know, the uh, a role at least um, economic is desired, but um, other than that, uh, we don't want you. Yeah, and, and they're they were caught up in you know during the Great Depression. Um, again, uh, in the 1950s, there were you know deportation or repatriation. Um, movements to uh, to deport Mexicans back to Mexico, um, and they were somewhat caught up in that as well. So uh, labor is wanted when it's wanted, but sometimes when, often when there's an economic downturn um, or changes in the labor market, those people that were welcomed before are then, uh, are not welcomed and, and sent back. Hmm. I want to read this, uh, quoting from you in the book, this is Lucas Chavez. Uh, let's see, by the 1940s, Chavez's wife had passed away, as had many of his friends in the Tucson area. He was lamenting the general decline of his Yaqui community. Chavez told anthropologist Edward Spicer, who interviewed him then, that he felt his people were, quote, uh, quoting Chavez here, going the wrong way, forgetting the good things, wishing to become like Mexicans, uh, end quote there. So uh, he's lamenting, I guess, the decline, loss of the Yaqui culture. Yeah. Um, you had Yaquis at the time spread across the state of Arizona, there were some centers in Tucson. Uh, there were Yaqui neighborhoods and villages. Um, um, Guadalupe, which is a town right next to Tempe, Arizona. Um, now it's kind of all part of this, the, the broader kind of Phoenix, you know, never-ending sprawl. But Guadalupe was originally a Yaqui town. Uh, so you had some centers, and they were spread other places as well. But they weren't living on a central, in a central community, um, say on a reservation like other Indians were in Arizona, which... Um, comes with challenges. Reservation life had challenges, but it also did allow, with the concentration of people, it allows for the maintaining of culture and language. So there are some benefits culturally as well. 
And Chavez and others by the mid-20th century were concerned that Yaquis were losing their Yaqui identity. Um, he's specifically concerned that they're just becoming Mexicans, which, as I mentioned, is, is a, a, quite ironic for this group that fled um, Mexico. Although they do still have Mexican families, uh, Yaqui families living in Mexico and, Son- and Sonora, and they still do today. But he was really concerned about this, which is part of what led Yaquis in the 1960s to start uh, for with some political activism to start to stand up. By that point, they're mostly American-born, so they're not concerned about being deported. And in the 60s, they create a nonprofit organization which is deeded some land to build a new village. This is where the uh, new Pasqua it was called um, to build housing and and services for their people. And then in the 1970s, this morphs into a political movement to fight for a federal tribal recognition because they still felt that their community was being underserved and that federal, recognized federal uh, status would give them new benefits as well. But it really does come from, yeah, from that quote from, from Chavez, that sense that, that, they, that they were losing something that needed to be preserved. So this, uh, I guess, is in progress, but it's maybe a happy ending, a happy middle. Uh, in terms, it culturally at least, uh, and I want to treat that. I want to kind of uh, the rest of the story here. Um, and this is not ancient history for the Yaquis. This recognition came in the 1970s, right? Not that long ago. Uh, let's take a break. I want to uh, talk about that part of the story when we come back. The book is Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in North American Borderlands. The author is Brendan Rensink, and uh, we'll have more following this break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we visit Israel and hear from a new generation of Israeli musicians who share their nation's multicultural roots. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Israel, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. afternoon, two Mormon missionaries visited the comedian Julia Sweeney. And they said they had a message for me from God. I said, well, please, come in. And they looked really happy because I don't think this happens to them all that often. I'm Guy Raz. Faith, belief, and doubt. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. That's coming up today at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. We've now reached the uh, last segment of our uh, conversation here with Brendan Rensink. Native but Foreign is his book. And uh, we have about oh, five or six minutes left in the conversation. So, Brendan Rensink, I want to uh, talk about uh, how recognition finally came. Uh, maybe we could concentrate on the, the Yaquis. Uh, it took decades and decades. Why do you think yeah. the Yaquis was so long it was a little faster for the, for the Chippewa Cree? 
Yeah, the Chippewas and Crees are, uh, are succeeded in 1916. So for those Cree refugees, it's about 35, 30 years. Um, but for Yaquis, it was a full century almost, not, not until 1978. Um, one of the interesting things is that um, Yaki, since Yaquis had valuable labor skills, they were a desired labor force. It allowed them to create stable communities and neighborhoods um, to find employment and to uh, have some kind of, a sense of more stability, even though they faced lots of economic hardships and troubles. Um, that Crees and Chippewas, Montanas, who were simply wandering on the state, simply did not have, um, which in a way allowed Arizonans to ignore the real problems that Yaquis were facing. Um, and, and I think that's one of the main contributors to what really delayed that timeline all the way until the 1970s. Mm. So they found, uh, finally, in this case with Chippewa Cree and with the Yaquis as well, uh, finally found powerful allies, um, congressmen and, and the like. Yeah, I mean, and we don't. This isn't like a story of you know white the white savior story of uh, of white uh, men and women coming in to save the day. But both Crees, Chippewas, and Yaquis are very become very strategic in making alliances with powerful people, and they find they have a compelling story, and um, they find lots of allies. Uh, yeah, um, academic. You mentioned Ed Spicer, who is a prominent anthropologist at the University of Arizona, congressmen, um, newspapermen, uh, business people, and others, start to, they start to recruit them to their cause. And it helps amplify their voice. It helps to publicize their, their story. And is a really crucial in their eventual, both of them, their eventual successes for federal tribal recognition. Uh, as you said, it's not the case of white savior. It's uh, the, the pretty politically savvy, you know, both peoples. Uh, I was impressed um, reading about um, Little Bear, who was pretty relentless and uh, pretty savvy in helping his people it's, get recognition. It's remarkable, yeah. Uh, for, for Little Bear and Rocky Boy and, and others, you know, they didn't have formal educational training as we would conceive of it, but they uh, reveal themselves as very savvy um, uh, in political maneuvering and in, in navigating a very foreign world of politics and economics and society. Um, Yaquis, many of them uh, that were instrumental in their recognition process, you know, had gone, um, had, had been to schools in the United States and had kind of the more formal economic, uh, educational training that we, that we're more familiar with. Um, but, uh, but they, they prove, uh, you know, equally as, impressive in, in what they're able to accomplish. So we just have about two minutes left, and I'd like to um, like to return to, to, to the general topic of history. You, you wrote something interesting um, in an interview. Um, let's see. Histories do not provide all the answers we need, but they help us learn what kinds of questions we should be asking about our present world. Uh, one of the things that history can do, what do you hope that Native but Foreign does? Um, I hope it. Inf- I hope it makes us more um, uh, compassionate people, more curious, uh, more willing to ask uh, difficult questions of ourselves and our own society and culture, and then um, increase the willingness to then listen and to to explore with others what um, not just our past, but what we maybe should be doing in the present. And I really do believe that some people look to history for all the answers, and it does provide answers and provides guideposts that show us mistakes that have been made in the past, good things that have been made in the past, and, and hint at what we should maybe do. 
But I think the greater power of history is it teaches us how to think critically and how to ask important questions and hard questions. And that's the real key, is we need to be willing to be uncomfortable as we explore the past uh, in hopes of improving our present. Well, it's a fascinating book, Native But Foreign. Um, and uh, should mention uh, this book won the 2019 Spur Award for the best historical nonfiction book from the Western Writers of America. Brendan Rensink uh, is a host of Writing Westward podcast. He's assistant director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies and assistant professor of history at Brigham Young University. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Gardeners Market 5th Annual Farm to Table Banquet, Saturday, September 14th, 6.30 to 9 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. at Crumb Brothers, featuring locally sourced foods. Ticket information at gardenersmarket.org or Saturday from 9 a.m. to 1 at the Gardeners Market. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting engaging and impactful stories of Utah 24 hours, 7 days a week on the air. But we have a lot more to say, and so much more for you to hear. The UPR social media team is bringing you Utah's most important stories right to your feed. Stay up to date and join the discussion by connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Don't forget to use the hashtag, I am UPR. Why wait? Pick up your mobile device now and get the most out of Utah Public Radio. And just as always, stay tuned for more on the air from UPR. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.